now. If you have a lot of money like the governor and you can send your kids to a $45,000, a year private school, you have school choice. Right. Um, if you're a, a stable family that has dual incomes or a, a large single income and can homeschool, you have school choice. If you're in a neighborhood that happens to have a charter school, like the Governor Brown had a couple uh, military academies, charter schools um, in Oakland, then you've got some choice. But a lot of communities don't have that. So one, I think actually having opportunities for other schools to exist is not um, it's not a bad thing. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today we're joined by Lance Christensen, Superintendent of Public Schools Candidate. Lance, how's it going? Thanks for joining the program. Doing great. Thanks for having me today on the on the the show. No worries, no worries. To just give our listeners a little background on yourself, kind of, can you tell us what you've been doing the last few years and kind of how you got in this position to run for Superintendent of Schools? So I have been a part of the Sacramento. Um, machine, I guess, in some, in some respect for about the last 20 years. I graduated from Pepperdine, came to Sacramento, worked for various members of the legislature, including Tom McClintock. Most recently, it was John Warlock's chief of staff. Uh, when he didn't win, win re-election in 2020, the world shut down, of course, mm, and right. crazy things happened. I moved over to the California Policy Center, where I am now the vice president of education policy and government affairs. My experience in the Capitol has helped inform much of that. Mm -hmm. I'm a parent of five kids. My oldest just graduated high school uh, in June and uh, my youngest is going to first grade. Her first real experience right. in, in a classroom. It's been kind of crazy. And uh, while at the California Policy Center this last year, mm -hmm. I was one of the key people that helped draft the school choice initiative. And we put a lot of time and effort into it to try to get it qualified for the November ballot this year. And we didn't have the resources. And I think it's a great project. I think there's a future for it. But because of that, it made me step back and realize um, earlier this year that there's got to be some sort of movement towards more parental involvement in what's happening in our education system. And uh, I say that because last the last year that we were in the legislature, there was the bill SB 98 um, as the public schools were hemorrhaging, having a hard time getting kids in the, to schools, the lockdowns. They knew that if they had any competition, that uh, the, the kids would leave the public district schools in, in mass. Right. And so they passed that bill to really hammer back on charter schools and make sure they couldn't get the resources they needed. And then I also watched a lot of parents just frustrated about these different mandates not that they were uh, not interested in keeping their kids healthy and doing the best thing that they could, but their only options were really pull the kids out of school and homeschool them or send them to private school if they had the resources. So I thought there's got to be a way, you know, there's got to be some ability to get out and communicate that there is an opportunity to have a better education system. And that's when somebody said, hey, superintendent of public instruction is kind of that place. Right. And I was aware of it. I've known about it for a long time. I've known the last three superintendents personally, um, but I had never thought about that in a million years. So that might be the place. So building up to January, um, it was nowhere in my mind. And then come February, March, right as the deadlines were happening to pull papers, it became kind of urgent as I realized nobody else that I thought could be a capable or competent um candidate was jumping in. I, I thought, well, maybe I need to do this. Right. So, so five kids 
during COVID-19 shutdowns. And this is where a lot of parents' frustrations came with the education system. And we're, we're still dealing with it, kind of. What were your experiences as a parent, you know, dealing with five kids, you know, dealing with school shutdowns and, uh, you know, computer school and things like that? The week that everything really came to a halt in March was the week my oldest turned 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had big plans, big party ready to go, Stanford volleyball game, um, take all of his friends, hotel for the night, get his driver's license, all got canceled. Uh, to be devastated as a teenage boy is one thing. To do it on your 16th birthday right. is a different thing. But then when the schools shut down, we were in San Juan Unified School District in Sacramento. Uh, to watch them basically go without education for a month and a half was pretty stunning. And to have no content really coming in. And then, of course, being locked into your home because nobody else wants to be out there and potentially get you know COVID. And nobody knew what was going on. And so how do you... How do you tell five kids under 16 that the world's going to be all right? Right. And that, you know, we can do what we need to do to um, take care of them. So I was able to work from home a little bit, but, you know, we had to rejigger the education process. We had to fill things. And my wife and I finally realized, okay, this is it. This is the opportunity to actually homeschool, to make it real. And we did it for about last two years and had an incredible experience releasing both the opportunities um, for educating our kids and a lot of the deficiencies out there. And frankly, what's happening in our public schools is a, it's a, in a lot of places is not good. And, and we've just, I think for far too long kind of ignored it because, you know, there's some nostalgia. I went to high school back in the nineties, had a great time, mm-hmm. uh, suburban Colorado and Denver. Right. Um, I think life was good. But it's different now. And so we were able to, I think, keep our kids motivated and happy and engaged and busy because we really got involved. But I can only imagine what it was like for a lot of other people. Um, I had a lot of friends that ended up picking up and moving out of California because other schools were opening back up. Um, I had one set of friends that moved their kids to Idaho for a year, lived in their parents' basement so their kids could go to in-person school. Wow. It's that sort of thing. I saw that happen over and over and over and my wife and I had the conversation. Do we stick around or we go, right? My job was here at least through November of 2020. Um, or do we pick up and try somewhere else? And in the end, we came down to this is our this is our place. It's our home. Let's make it work. Right. So, that, you know, something you just mentioned is, you know, after November of 2020, you know, Morrill Act did not win his election. Right. You were out of a job and you went to work for uh, some sort of think tank on, yep. on, a, on a, uh, I guess, specifically on education. And you were working on something called the Students' Choice Initiative. Is that yeah. right? Can you tell us a little bit about that initiative and kind of what its goals were? Yeah. So California Policy Center is a 501c3 nonprofit educational um, issues. We work to advance prosperity of California by removing government barriers to freedom. And a lot of that has to do with our education system. We're big fans of school choice, uh, charter schools, private schools, homeschools, any alternative to the public school um, regime right now. And uh, the irony is when we went When I went over to California Policy Center, we worked to give people options. But when school shut down, we actually worked really hard to get the schools back open, ironically enough. Um, And in the process of having that conversation, we realized we've got an opportunity in 2021 to build up to 2022, a huge election where parents really frayed, um, frayed, F-R-A-Y-E-D, right? But they were also afraid of what was about to happen. 
And we thought this is the moment where we could actually make some kind of change that would have a lasting impact. And when I was chief of staff to John Warlock in the Senate, we ran a bill SB 1344, which would provide an education savings account for kids. So basically whatever Prop 98 money comes into the system, that amount of money goes into an education savings account. If you opt into it, you have to opt in and then you can take that money and use it in any private um, school you would like. The idea is to give the schools a little bit of competition, but also the parents some freedom. But if you took the money, then you were no longer allowed to go to the public school. So you couldn't double dip sort right. of thing, right? And we had that concept, but didn't go anywhere. Lost an education committee, of course, in the Senate. And so we revived that idea. And with a coalition of people, we put together this initiative, pushed hard, and there was some internal wrangling, unfortunately, that created a division um, we ended up going two separate directions and just couldn't raise the funds to make it happen. And so we, I think, built a really solid and interesting coalition. I met a ton of people throughout the state. We had to get a million signatures and couldn't do that. Again, it just takes resources to make that kind of stuff happen. And so the idea is still there. The question is, can it happen in 2024? What are the conditions going to be between now and then to see if we can get a, a legitimate school choice initiative on the ballot? Yeah, like definitely a lot of angry parents the last two years dealing with schools like here in Sacramento. You know, we've had issues here with SAC Unified, San Francisco. We saw, you know, the issues over there with their school board. Kind of what are you hearing from parents right now and their kind of satisfaction with, you know, the status quo and kind of what changes they want? They're not satisfied, um, but a lot of them don't want to change too much because they don't want to rock the, rock the boat. Um and I think what drives a lot of the momentum right now is the mama bear groups. It's the the women who have just been regular moms, taking their kids to soccer, doing laundry, shopping, maybe a part-time job. Um, or maybe they were full-time. Uh, maybe they have, you know, a lot going on, but they have realized that if they don't have control over their kids, then we have a problem. And when they started to see a lot of that control evaporate, um, that made a big difference. And I think one of the bills that was the most distinct, which just died literally a couple hours ago, mm. was SB 866. And this was the one to change the age of consent for all vaccinations to 12 years old. Um, I have two teenagers. They don't know their head from a hole in ground when it comes to medical records. And to tell them that they could go get any vaccination, not just that for COVID, but any without my um, permission or without my understanding could be devastating to some families whose kids have real medical histories and problems. Mm -hmm. um, but that it could be done in secret behind parents' backs at these schools, I think really enraged a lot of parents. And so it's been interesting to see this coalition of mama bears mostly that stood up in their jobs and said, we're not going to take any more. And they've organized as um, it, it's kind of been interesting to watch. It's not professional. They don't have paid lobbyists showing right. up to the building. It's them putting a lot of footwork and late nights and flights on their own dime to Sacramento and meetings at their district, their legislators' district offices, um, writing letters, doing social media, Instagram posts and Facebook lives. They made um, a lot of impact. And today, um, Senator Rainer pulled his bill. He couldn't get the kind of traction he thought he could. And a lot of it was a bipartisan kill-off. They were able to get enough Democrats to say, we have doubts and concerns about how this will go forward. We're going to pull our support and he didn't get the votes. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of thing happening. I hope that we can, can keep the momentum going, but I've been in Sacramento long enough to know that you get a win. That's not 
the last time the issue is going to come up. Right. And you're going to have a lot more opportunities to really be seriously engaged. So it's not just advocacy, but it's now organizing and make sure you can build that coalition that's sustaining. Mm-hmm. So superintendent of schools, kind of what does that job entail and kind of what kind of change do you think you can have, you know, if elect superintendent? So the superintendent's office has been around since the first constitution in California, 1849. Um, it's an independently elected constitutional officer that is nonpartisan. So it's not like the lieutenant governor, governor, attorney general, secretary of state, where they all have a D or R behind their their name. It's nonpartisan. And so on the ballot, there's no um, designation of party. But the superintendent also, because they're independently elected, are not responsive to the governor or the legislature necessarily. The legislature and the governor are going to play with curriculum standards and budgets and those kinds of things. But the superintendent really has a lot of free reign over issues on curriculum and oversight and uh, funding mechanisms through federal governments and other special programs. The superintendent is the executive director of the Department of Education. California, we have 2,400 people that work for the department. It's a $175 million budget. It's a huge budget. Um, Superintendent also sits as an ex officio on the board of education. That's where a lot of the curriculum decisions happen and other things. Superintendent of Public Instruction also sits on the Commission for Teacher Credentialing, where I'm having a conversation right now about retaining good teachers right. and making sure that we can get rid of the poor ones. Um, and also sits as an ex officio on the higher education uh, boards for the community college, the trustees of the CSUs, and the UC Board of Regents. So if it has education uh, connection, the superintendent has some um, relationship there. Now, they're not leg- the legislature. They're not the governor. They can't open or close schools necessarily, but they can have a big bully pulpit and they can have a seat at the table and they can push back and offer alternatives. They can be a part of the discussion when it comes to putting things on the agenda for any one of these boards. And they can be a spokesperson for parents. And I think the last the current superintendent, especially the last few, just have not really cared as much about parents as they should. And I mean, that's my impetus for running. Right. I guess that's the interesting thing is, is you are a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, when was the last superintendent who was a parent? Well, the current, I mean, I think the last several yeah. have all been parents. Yeah. Uh, the current one has, I, I believe, two daughters and I'm sure fantastic. Right. He's, I'm sure he's a fantastic parent. Um, and I actually... I think that uh, there are a lot of parents that um, are involved in politics and still get education policy wrong. Mm. Uh, just because you're a parent doesn't mean you're going to be an expert. And we don't, I don't claim to be that either for a lot of things. But I also believe that I'm qualified to do this because of my experience at the Capitol and my experience in nonprofit world and running a lot of education policy issues. Right. But I also acknowledge, too, there's a lot of really bad parents out there. And... Uh, you don't have to go far to find them, right? but they should ultimately be the arbiter for what's happening in their kids' lives. Unless there's some extremely crazy situation of abuse, neglect, you know, those kinds of things. We have a process to deal with that. Other than that, parents are going to make decisions about their own kids. And in California, we have 6.6 million kids under the age of 18 um, of that or between five and 18, excuse me, of that about 5.9 go to our public schools. And so that's a lot of kids to maintain. And there's no bureaucrat, there's no administrator, there's no school board trustee in the world that can control 6 million people very effectively. Right. No, that's, that's a lot. Um, kind of talking about kind of, you know, schools and funding, uh, California, it's always talked about the 
the pure pupil spending, uh, you know, we recently had Nancy Skinner on. She said, you know, they've really invested in pure pupil spending this year with the budget and the surpluses. But we, you know, we were ranking down at the bottom. Um, can, I, can you kind of talk about pure pupil spending and kind of why is that important and how that can help, I guess, raise the level of California schools, which haven't ranked very high, uh, according to other states? Yeah, it's amazing how this conversation goes. In California, we're spending this year, 20, um, 2022-23 fiscal year, $128.6 billion. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And when you calculate that out, it's almost $23,000 per student this year. I don't know how that ranks near the bottom. And it's been decently high. Last year was about 21500 Before that was about 20000 So it's high. Um, but when you compare it to other states, we also have a lot of other opportunities with our, our students and, and how we do the local control funding um, formulas. Every community is going to be different about what kind of money they get in. But if I had over $20,000 per student and your average classroom size is 25 students in California, that's almost $600,000. That's a lot of money for one classroom for a year. You should be able to pay a good teacher a good, decent salary, six-figure salary. And I'm not opposed to that. But what happens to all that money? You know, by the time it gets down to the classroom level, it's got to go through several layers of bureaucracy. One of them being the Department of Education, which is, you know, a decent amount of oversight over things. But then your board's got to make decisions at the local level. You have overhead. You've got to take care of your buildings and pay your rent, insurance, and all that stuff. I get all those costs, I understand. But the problem is it shouldn't be $500,000 worth of costs before it gets to the classroom. It should be, you know, minimal. And so uh, the per pupil spending is the money is not the issue. And it never has been. It's how do you appropriate that money to make sure that it's doing the best thing possible. And I think a lot of schools, it's interesting, most schools have between 6 to 8% discretionary spending. So they have a budget that's pretty massive, but they only have control over less than 10% of that money. Again, why is that? If you're a principal at a school, we should give you 90% discretion over that money and you make the decisions. And if you're not performing at a, at a high level, then let's find somebody else to step in and do it. But it's reversed. And so they're often handicapped because there are so many mandates and requirements by the time the money gets to them that it's not going the place that's most effective. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been a superintendent that's actually pointed this out in a long time. There's ways we could go through and really detail out the budget for these, these kids and say, okay, what's working? Right now, California ranks 50th in the nation in literacy, 50th. EdSource just had the most brutal takedown I have ever seen about literacy and reading in California on Sunday. And whatever amount of money we're using is not going to the place that's needed most. And if our kids can't read by, by third grade, we're basically pushing them to a life of, of poverty or crime. And that's got to stop. There's got to be better attention to details when the money gets down to the school district that doesn't happen in Sacramento and it shouldn't, I'd be willing to relinquish as much authority as possible to make sure the local districts get the money and use it effectively. I guess that's, that's the thing is, is, you know, public schools, right? They should all be equal, but they're not. No. And if you're in a certain neighborhood, you're going to have a nice school. And if you're not in this neighborhood, you might have a bad school. And it's kind of like, how do you, how do you solve that issue? Like people move, Neighborhoods gentrify, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes neighborhoods had, had kids 30 years ago and now they don't. It's it's an older neighborhood now. Um, and so kids are, are moved in there and such. 
you know, how do you how do you deal with this issue where it's a lot of property tax funding issues? It's a lot of kind of certain, you know, nicer, newer neighborhoods also, you know, have newer, nicer schools. Uh, how do you deal with this disparity and, and ensure that, you know, everyone can have a chance at getting an equal education? Well, it's a hard question that's uh, been around with us since the beginning, right? Um, I think the biggest challenge is it's perception of over reality. Because you have a nice area or community does not mean that the school is going to be any better quality. They may have nicer gyms and facilities and classrooms. It may look better. They may pay teachers more. But the way that Proposition 98 works is it starts with your property back, uh, uh, tax base as you know the baseline. Right. And it fills the bucket up so far. And there's a certain amount of schools, um, districts in the state that they can fill that bucket all the way up. Um, but there's most of them can't. And so they have to get state money comes in under Prop 98 that fills that bucket. And there's also different pieces through what they call the local control funding formula. Brown, when he was governor, tried to eliminate some of the mandates that were on schools really heavy and hard to deal with. So we tried to simplify that and get money to these to these different schools. But if you were to go to a school like in Sausalito, they actually get way more money per pupil than, say, a kid in Marin or, or Beverly Hills. So it's not a function, again, of money. It's how are you allocating those funds to make sure they're getting the right education. And again, teachers, they're normal human beings. They don't want to teach in a school that's, you know, dungy and old right. and the classrooms haven't been, you know, got new carpet in 30 years and the copiers don't work and the teacher's lounge stinks um, or it's perpetually, you know, under construction or in a dangerous neighborhood. So they'll want to go to the nicer schools. That doesn't mean, though, that you get a better school because you have a higher paid teacher. Right. And so there's a lot of conversations we've got to have on teacher tenure, I think, would change the discussion dramatically in California. And several legislators have tried to pass teacher tenure laws um, over the last few years and with no success. Mm. The power of the teachers union is incredible in Sacramento. It can't be overstated. You've got 319,000 public school teachers in California. 319,000. That's a lot. Yeah. And if they're paying some average about a thousand bucks a month for their union dues. That means that they're going to have 300-ish million dollars to lobby, campaign, or advocate with. So you're going to get a lot done with that money um, if you're the teachers union. And so a lot of school districts may want to make improvements, but they've got to go through the bus side, the teachers union, the local affiliate or the state affiliate mm. to make sure things can happen. And that can almost be an impossible task. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the interesting thing you're up against, right? You mm -hmm. you just ran a race, and I think you said there were six or seven other candidates. Uh, seven total, seven yeah, total, including the incumbent. And and you came in right at the last minute. Uh, and, and how much money did you have to run? Probably sixty thousand dollars is what we ended up. And with sixty thousand dollars, you were almost able to get a million votes. Yeah. Uh, how did you do it? Part of its relationships, I had a lot as I built them up over the last few years. Um, I know the process. I've worked in Sacramento for a long time, so I know where all the kind of the, the, the spots are. I've been really strong on parent advocacy through my job at California Policy Center. I deal with parents all the time. We have a, a group called Parent Union, which reaches out and helps organize parents to advocate for their kids better in schools. Um, so I have a lot of relationships there. But I also... I have some amount of political background experience. I worked for several legislators. I ran for school board in 2008 unsuccessfully. Um, so I knew that if we could target our resources, limited resources in certain areas, that would be great. So we, we focused on the places that, that we could get the most bang for our buck, Los Angeles, San Diego, Sacramento, Orange County, Placer, Riverside, and a few other places where we could move the vote. 
and we knew where our votes were, um, even when we had a couple other candidates who were aligned ideologically, if not politically with us, we knew where our votes were and we went after those votes. And uh, we're doing the same thing right now. We're working really hard to make sure we align with people that are running for school board that want change. And I'll tell you, there are hundreds of candidates right now that just want to throw the pums out and they're knocking doors every day. They're out in their communities. And with 22 million voters, I can't be all things to all people and I can't be everywhere. Um, I've traveled most of the state and I will continue to do so through the election. But in the primary, we focus on the places where you can move the needle to win or to get in second place at least and to hold the incumbent under 50%. We accomplished both those things. And now the the next part is to go into the general election. And ironically enough, uh, I don't know it's ironically, but three weeks out from the election, ballots had already been mailed out. I think the internal polling for the incumbent was pretty bad because the teachers union and other government unions spent $2.2 million on his campaign. Um, that's stunning. Three weeks out, if you're a political, you know that money, you're just burning it in a fire. Right. Um, but the polling must be that bad. And if you look, there's been no polling on our race specifically. Uh, I think that others could do it if they wanted to. Um, but what we're saying is a lot of people are just dissatisfied with the state of public education. So if that dissatisfaction continues on through November, I think we'll see a major tsunami in educational politics in California. Yeah. Like, you know, I guess the consensus wisdom is is you're an underdog, right? Mm-hmm. You have more than a million votes to make up. Kind of, you know, you have big money against you. Uh, you know, how do you do it? What's your what's your path to victory? Well, my path is to do exactly what happened in San Francisco in February. Uh, San Francisco has 500,000 voters, 34,000 of them are Republicans, 6.6% of them are Republicans. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a Republican or conservative revolt. Um, They also are the largest city with the fewest amount of kids in the entire country. So it wasn't even a parent revolt. It was a common sense revolt. A lot of people said, we're not going to shut these schools down and change the name of the schools or change the admission process for our magnet schools. We're going to keep on doing what we need to do. And so they threw out three of the seven board members um, on a pretty, pretty high vote margin. Um, I think that same thing can be sustained throughout the state. And the way that we're planning to do it is just being out there in front of the people. I do a lot of social media, a lot of videos, podcasts, you know, like this, um, earn media. In the primary, though, there was only really a couple of papers that actually jumped in and, and had a conversation about this race. Um, I got endorsed by the Orange County Register, San Diego Union Tribune, and 13 other newspapers across the state. Um, the incumbent got endorsed by only one that I recall, and there might have been others that were smaller, but the only one that stepped into the race was the San Francisco Chronicle. And when they endorsed him, they basically said, he's not been a really good superintendent, but we can't have Lance in because while he is the most qualified, he's for school choice. And I think looking back, that was that was kind of an awesome endorsement of my race. It was a backhand endorsement. Right. Um, going forward, the LA Times didn't step in and endorse. They came back and they said, uh, you know, Tony Thurman, we think you might win, so you might want to change things. And then they called me up. That was in, in June after the primary. They called me up. They said, listen, we actually want to do an endorsement interview. We think it's important. This race is really important. So I had four of their editors for an hour. We had a really good and honest conversation. They haven't endorsed yet. They have the endorsement ready to go, as far as I understand. Right. Um, but I think they're making their calculations, too. Is is a guy like Lance Christensen, a reformer, a parent, an advocate, somebody that they can throw their weight behind? 
when they acknowledge that schools are so bad or is it something that they don't want to go against the the narrative or the 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 powers that be at the capital right so we'll see what happens you know it's interesting as a parent you just want what's best for your kid mm-hmm. and you want them to go to the best school uh school choice in the abstract sounds great right giving parents the choice to do what's best for their child why is it such a controversy and what what why what does it need to take to get some traction? Because that's basically what parents are doing, anyways, right? I exactly. They're a school choice right now. If you have a lot of money, like the governor, and you can send your kids to a forty-five, fifty thousand dollar a year private school, you have school choice. Right. Um, if you're a, a stable family that has dual incomes or a, a large single income and can homeschool, you have school choice. If you're in a neighborhood that happens to have a charter school, like the governor Brown had a couple uh, military academies, charter schools um, in Oakland, then you've got some choice, but a lot of communities don't have that. So one, I think actually having opportunities for other schools to exist is not, um, it's not a bad thing. The government doesn't own our public schools. The public does. And so those tax dollars are not owned by the district schools they should be good stewards. That's why we elect school board trustees. If a charter school fails and doesn't educate its kids appropriately, the school shuts down and the the parents leave. They have choice. If a public neighborhood school is terrible, it doesn't shut down. What do we do? We throw more money at it. We try to fix that problem through financial means. We've got to get away from that way of thinking. So why is it controversial? Because there's the powers that be that control the public uh, district schools. And they don't want it to change. And so it's almost as if the the parasite is overtaking the host. And we have a problem when a lot of teachers, most teachers are incredible. I taught fourth grade years ago in Denver, Colorado. I taught an inner city school where 50% of the kids didn't speak English as a first language at home and 20% barely spoke English at all. So I know the, the struggle is real for a teacher. Most teachers are really amiable and um, nice, affable people. Um, that's the problem, though. When you go to the teacher's lounge, there's always there's one or two teachers that makes life mis- miserable for everybody else. And so those teachers often pull back, don't want to rock the boat. And so they kind of go along to get along. We have got a lot of parents that feel the same way. My school's good. My teachers are great. My principal's great. Yeah, that one teacher is kind of annoying and drives me nuts. Right. But I'm not going to pull my kids out. So choice doesn't mean that we're going to empty the public district schools. Choice means that you actually have an option to go somewhere else. It's a little bit of competition. So it shouldn't be that controversial. Um, and most of these charter schools are operating 75 cents on the dollar for the for their education. They're not getting the full freight. Um, you can educate homeschool for a couple thousand dollars. And if you're a really enterprising mom, like my wife, you'll make that work. Um, so you have to make a decision as a parent. And really in the end, you know your kids best. Mm-hmm. Education begins and ends at home and the people at the schools, as well-intentioned as they are, and I've had a lot of incredible teachers, administrators, principals. My high school principal, Mark Stein, is probably my favorite people on the planet. Mark Stein changed my life. He was amazing. Um, I can remember all of the teachers I had who made incredible impacts in my life, but there's always that one or two that just make life difficult and they don't want the system to change. I guess what you're talking about is is accountability, yeah. right? Is that currently there's no way to keep a school accountable, right? And even here in, in Sacramento, like if it's not a charter school, you have open enrollment, and you have parents who spend the night, you know, trying to get their kids into certain schools. 
because uh, they don't live in the district because there's there's open enrollment. I guess what what are some of the other ways that you can help keep a school accountable? Uh, well, you brought up a really interesting point. In Arizona, they don't have school district boundaries. If you can drive your kid to another school district anywhere in the state, as long as you get your kid there, they can enroll in that school. So you're now having districts competing against each other in a more, um, uh, you know, more vigorous way than you would have had otherwise. Um, the ESA accounts, the education savings accounts that we were trying to do for the school choice initiative is another opportunity. They just passed in Arizona, another law that's universal. Hmm. Anybody can get access to it. Same thing in West Virginia. We're seeing these laws pop up throughout the States. Um, you can do it in a way where maybe we have a conversation about what education really is. You know, what does it really mean to educate our kids? Are we creating, um, people who produce or producers in the 21st century economy? Are they energized and engaged citizens? Are they good people and parents? Are they establishing families in ways that's sustainable in our, in our area? That's not happening right now. So we've got to have that conversation and it won't happen until parents really have, um, I think they realize that there's not a lot of options on the table for them. So there are ways to get there. It needs leadership. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that's willing to stand up and, and push back against the establishment right now. I'm one of those people that's willing to say, hey, there's a different way. And it doesn't have to be my way. It can be a lot of different ways. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, alienating our public district schools, but improving them from the inside. Right. It can be improving the teacher tenure laws. Like I said, it can be making sure that we're paying teachers appropriately enough. Uh, Rick Hanischek, who's one of the top education um, researchers in the United States at the Hoover Institute at Stanford just wrote an incredible piece at, in, in the Wall Street Journal outlining ways in which states are doing this right now, where they're paying teachers, good teachers, what they're worth. And I think there are opportunities to completely fix California's um, position right now. Interesting. Like California, we always like to talk about how we lead the way, how we're the best, uh, seventh, sixth best economy, fifth best economy, depending on what year it is sure. in the world. Uh, but, you know, in these rankings that you said, like, you know, in, um, you know, reading, we're at the bottom. And, there, you know, there's also this talk about, like, the Mississippification of California. Like, right, Mississippi is always the worst, and California is down there in a lot of these educational rankings. Uh, you know, what can we, like, who is the best? Who is the gold standard state out there in education? What does education look like there? And, you know, how can we get to, you know, be the best, like we like to say we are? Well, we didn't plan this, but you brought up Mississippi and the governor's actually been dogging on a lot of people in these other red states. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, is Mississippi is the only state in the last several years has actually increased its literacy rates like be, uh, leaps and bounds. It, in fact, it's like jumped over, I think, like 20 states in terms of its scores because they've actually focused on the student and had cooperation with the parents and had, you know, pedagogy that makes sense. Um, California loves the fads. So, you know, we do a lot of this whole language learning or common core or whatever. We do all these things. But frankly, um, we've had years and decades to see if they're effective. They're not. We're literally at the bottom of almost every single academic metric out there. If we're not at the bottom, we're near the bottom. We're in the 40s. There might be a couple where we're in the mid 30s or high 30s. But we're not really at the top of any metric except for spending. So again, it's not as if the money's not there. It's what is the attention to? And do we really enable local school districts to make better decisions about, you know, education funding? We don't. We've got to find a way to do that. And parents will hold their school districts accountable. But we aren't the best anymore. And we haven't been for some time. 
And it's not as if it just happened overnight. This is something that's happened over decades and probably generations. But again, it's probably time for a really good come to Jesus moment, you know, for lack of a better term to say, what are we doing that's not working and what can we do to improve the situation going forward? And I guess kind of get it back to my what question is what state is getting it right? Like which state? Arizona, West Virginia, both have done these five. Yeah. Have both changed these things. Places like Utah, which has not spent a lot on their pure pupil spending. Um, Tennessee's improved things recently. Virginia in the November of 2020 elections. Um, the teachers union was a big piece of that. They came out and basically said, Hey, we're going to run things this certain way. And governor Glenn Youngkin ran against that. Randy Weingard came out and basically said with Terry McCall, if we're going to take this back and parents don't deserve to be in the classroom at all, Virginia has come out and basically revamped all of our education uh, processes and outcomes. And they're standing at the top of pretty much everything that they're doing right now. Yeah, that's interesting because even like in, you know, countries, you know, I have friends who grew up in Mexico and they say, you know, when they came here in like the fourth or fifth grade, like they were like years ahead of their classmates because, you know, they do such a, a better job with reading and math down there. So it's, it's definitely interesting. There are a lot of countries do and they don't do it with as many resources as we have. Right. You go to most European countries, it's the same thing. And actually a lot of the kids in these other countries go to school fewer hours a day. When my wife was homeschooling, she get pretty much the whole curriculum done in a few hours what would take eight or nine hours at a public school to do? You know, there's like different levels of school, right? You got elementary school, you got junior high, you got high school. Um, kind of what speak, can you kind of speak to like a, the different levels of education? I guess there's different ways of, of, of doing it. Some schools are, are K through eight now. Uh, some really believe in this middle school type of thing. And, you know, are there different, you know, ways that a superintendent needs to look at these different levels of education? Well, I think the community makes the best decision about those kinds of things. Um, there are school districts that have maybe K through five, K through six, K through eight, and um, K through 12 schools all within the same district. If that makes sense and works for them, then they should pursue that. I have seen nothing in middle school that makes me happy. I remember middle school, I hated middle school and it's not improved. In right. fact, I think it's denigrated since I was in middle school in the 80s. Um, I've watched my kids go through middle school and it's a cesspool of craziness, but it's also a lot of hormones and, and different things. So do you combine that or not? I don't know. I think there's different ways of looking at, at how you deal with the kids in the puberty range. Kids that go through high school, I don't know that we necessarily have to keep this model of them going through 12th grade. Um, there's a lot of kids right now that are doing concurrent enrollment with colleges. Um, my son is a sophomore is doing that with a, one of the local community colleges. We should do that more often. I think there's opportunities for career technical or vocational education that don't necessarily need to start in high school. Maybe it starts in middle school. You know, in the country you go, there's a lot of the FFA programs, Future Farmers America, or, you know, or uh, the the different kinds of uh, vocational right. programs. Like Let's, coding now. Like that's exactly. Area. Yeah. And if you're in the Bay Area, right, well, there's a lot of these schools that focus on on that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so it really needs to be community based, but it shouldn't be, our schools should not be all things to all people. And that's, I think where we've really strayed now. If I were superintendent, I'd push back against this community school concept, this idea that these schools should be hospitals and mental health centers and, um, and in restaurants and whatever else. We have a lot of problems as a society that we need to deal with, but the education our kids, which is primary, which is guaranteed in the state constitution, article nine, should be focused on building up our kids' minds and letting other 
other um, organizations or charitable resources fix the other problems that are out there. If a school is so focused on feeding their kids stomachs, which is important, kids should not go without food. But if that's the ultimate focus and you're not feeding their mind, you really have kids that are nutritionally starved mentally. And we're, we're seeing that play out right now in a lot of areas where the district, again, wanting to take care of the least among us. Mm -hmm. And I think we should always be thinking about the least, last, the lost. But there are better ways to do that that don't have to or require the public school system to be involved in that. Yeah, it's interesting. You said your your daughter was just starting first grade. My son just started first grade. And it's kind of interesting. You know, he did the TK, the kindergarten. And I'm seeing what he's doing in first grade. And I was like, man, I don't think I did that till like third grade. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're pushing these kids younger and younger to, to learning, you know, universal TK, universal preschool. Uh, how important is that? And, you know, how, how does that lead to helping us, I guess, raise our literacy standards? I don't think it helps us at all, honestly. When you send your kid off from a mother or a father or the family to a school, to a stranger who may be a perfectly good human being, at a young and tender age of four, three, four, or five, you lose something there. And now there are people that have to send their kids off to preschool or they work or whatever the case is. I get that. And I'm sympathetic. But I think when you make that mandatory or universal, you lose something because now you're demanding that all parents basically give their kids away to the state. And some parents may want to make different choices or sacrifices to make sure their kids are raised in their home. I would say most parents and grandparents probably are the key to improving literacy in our state. It's not going to be the educational programs. Now I have a daughter who's in fourth grade now. She has an IEP. She's had some speech impediments for years. She's a beautiful and incredible and a very intelligent young lady. But the speech therapy was an important piece of our process. Mm -hmm. And it was impossible to do over Zoom right. or with masks on. You can't have speech therapy with a mask on. Um, so we sat for two years and tried to wrestle and navigate a very complex process and use whatever resources that the state and the community provided or the school district provided for those services. People should have access to that stuff. But when you start sending kids, it's mandatory for them to be in kindergarten or in preschool or TK or whatever we're calling these things now. And again, I understand the nuances. I had a son who did TK and then did kindergarten. We only had one of those and I didn't really see an improvement. Mm -hmm. I, what I saw is a, a mom and older siblings who took time to read with him, who took time to spend working on his alphabet and spelling and writing and all those kinds of things. And now he in turn is doing it to his younger siblings. There's gotta be more cohesive way in educating our, our kids to our families um, and having the schools, the backup and not the primary educator. Yeah. Yeah, that's something you, you touched upon is is it how important, I guess, the parents are in reinforcing what they learn at school, right? The homework, um, reading, things like that. Uh, you know, how in California, how, how can we raise our, our literacy here in California to achieve kind of levels of other states? Well, maybe we need to invert the system. The Khan Academy did that, right? If you're familiar with Khan Academy, the idea was basically teaching concepts to kids and then tracking their progress and finding out and diagnosing where there are gaps in the system mm -hmm. and then filling in those gaps with more resources. So a kid may be really good in math, but do terrible in, in literacy. So, okay, the math stuff, there's these basic pieces, but we're sending the kid to math class for an hour a day or 45 minutes or whatever. We're sending them to the reading or literacy class for an hour a day. Maybe it should be different. Maybe it's 15 minutes on this and two hours on literacy or reading. 
maybe kids learn differently, right? right? We've basically neglected our gifted and talented kids in the state. We put a lot of resources into the special needs students. Again, I have a daughter who goes through that process. But if you take your really talented kids who are really bright, but it may not show and you don't give them the resources, they may not be literate, despite the fact them of them being very uh, bright and, and articulate otherwise. Um, maybe it is making sure that the school is not the primary place that we that we provide education. It's the secondary place. I really don't believe school is the primary place to, to do education. I really think it all starts in the home. But that means parents have to step up to the plate and be more engaged in that process. They need to have the conversations around the dinner table. And if their lives are such they can't have that, then let's find ways to, to make that happen at, um, at home. But if you're sending your kids off and hoping that the teacher and the principal is going to raise your kids and give them an education, that basically you're sitting them on a conveyor belt and hoping that they come out on the other side right. just fine. And that's the system we have right now. It's a conveyor belt in a warehouse and it's crossing our fingers and making to make sure that it all works out right. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like Malcolm Gladwell's done a lot of st- like podcasts and studies on this. And basically he's found that we don't do a very good job of, as you said, finding our most talented and gifted people and seeing them through the process to make sure they, they make it on the end and identifying them at a young age and, and giving them what they they need. And kind of what you said is, is yeah, we all learn differently. We know that. Um, you know, the governor's been a big act advocate of, you know, dyslexia. And, you know, some people learn differently, right? Some people learn by reading and writing. Some people learn more visually. Some people m- learn more audibly. Uh, what can you do to kind of, I guess, custom, you know, the education system to ensure that we are harvesting those diamonds and, and you know, getting the most out of our pupils? Well, a lot of kids, when they go to school, the assessments don't really start until they're in third grade-ish. There's some that are done basically, but it's actually having a teacher that knows how to assess these things. Um, there's a lot of good teachers out there that know how to do this, but there's actually a lot of teachers that don't. And maybe better training on that end to say, okay, let's identify the really smart kids. But then let's not just set them in the class with all the rest. Maybe there needs to really be um, efforts and resources on a gifted and talented program. Um, the kids that are kind of in the middle, but have a different learning style. I have a brother who's an autodidact. You could talk to him and he can he will memorize every word you say. Um, we were kids and he walked in. Um, to a movie and walked out and recited the entire movie after seeing it one time. Um, He was hit by a car when he was in third grade, was in the hospital for seven weeks with a a broken femur. And my grandfather read to him James and the giant peach. And he recited it back to him an hour later. Um, Those kinds of things need to be identified early. Right. Um, But they're different talents and every kid has a different talent, skill and ability set. So let's find what that is if they're a hands-on learner, how do we accentuate that kinesthetic? You know, how do we really make sure they're getting the kind of education that makes that work and then fills in the gaps so they can th- they can think more clearly, communicate more clearly, uh, articulate their their thoughts and processes better? We've got to to do that at the very beginning a little bit better. And then that also means too, and, and this is controversial in some places, even on more conservative circles, is you've got to track that progress somehow. And if you really want to make sure your kid, when they start at the beginning in kindergarten, transition mm-hmm. kindergarten, all the way through 12th, then maybe it's really having a comprehensive plan with this kid and actually working with parents to make sure that we're filling in the gaps. And at home, you're you're spending more time on this subject, uh, that you're getting more time um, uh, or resources to go. And maybe there's a specialist that will help them with a particular issue they have. 
Um, but we're not doing that right now mm-hmm. because basically the public schools get a certain amount of money and they're often strapped because of a whole bunch of, re- of mandates. And I'm sympathetic to them. I really am. But it's a broken system. So maybe we need to step back and say, oh, how, how are we really evaluating what we have at the beginning and what we want it to be at the very end and then the process to get it there? Yeah. So what are we we're roughly eight, nine weeks from election day? Kind of what is your next nine le- weeks look like? Well, it's uh, very busy. It's trying to get to as many cities in the state. There's 944 school districts in the state. Um, and out of the 58 counties, I've been to 23 personally for an event. Not just that I've driven through or, you know, stopped at, at a restaurant. But I've been to 23 counties for events and multiple, uh, several of those multiple times. So I'll be spending time out with the people. I was in Del Norte County uh, last weekend, not this weekend, but the weekend before. And they had said they've not seen a superintendent of public instruction in years. They couldn't remember the last one. Um, I'm getting out and just showing people that I care. And when you show up, even if it's a few thousand people, it's not a huge voting block. I mean, I'm not getting Del Norte County doesn't mean that I'm winning the election, right? right? You go from a couple of ten thousands of people to 10.4 million in LA. That's important. So I'll be in LA. I'm doing events and fundraisers. Um, if people want to support me, they can go on and follow me on social media and share with their friends. They can tell um, their neighbors and family and other voters about them, or they can go to my website, lancechristensen.com and see what I'm about, learn more about me. And Frank, a lot of people, if they're dubious of me, they think, oh, this guy's kind of crazy. He's a little, he's a little too conservative for me or whatever. Right. That's fine. Look at the results for the last few years. I, honestly, just look at it. If you like what's been happening, then vote for the same guy that will bring the same results. But if you want to try something different, have some sort of transparency, that's what I've been sharing with parents across the state. I'm meeting with um, ed boards uh, to try to get the different endorsements of different newspapers. I think that's important because a lot of people base that off of. When I ran the first time around, uh, California election law is archaic. So you had to submit your ballot statement three weeks before the deadline for nomination papers. Well, I wasn't even thinking about running for office when that was due. So I didn't even have a ballot statement which makes it all the more curious how I actually yeah. won the primary or came top two in the primary. We put the time and, and effort into that. And so, you know, those kinds of things add up and we're hoping them as the message gets out and as parents experience the school year this year, and we have a lot of communication relationships with others running for school board that, that will have an opportunity to move the needle forward in the, in the election. And I really feel good about this election We've done no internal polling. I have no idea. Right. I've challenged Tony Thurman to a series of debates. So far, he's not been willing to do or engage. I get it. He's the incumbent. If he can just keep his head low and make it through, he might slip through again. But uh, I'm working on three or four options for a possible form or debate. And I will even go. And I'm totally happy to have the CTA host and moderate a debate as long as they'll let me get in front of, of people and have a conversation about the direction of education in California. Interesting. Like you mentioned your socials, what, you know, how can people follow you and find you? They can go to Lance for CA super on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Uh, I do a medium blog, uh, where I write just kind of my thoughts about education policy and where we should be going from here. Uh, YouTube channel with whatever videos I come up with, but my website, honestly, Lance has all those resources and they can find me there. And if they want to volunteer, they're more than welcome to. If they're running for school board and they want my endorsement, I will work with any parent, any advocate, any 
concerned citizen running for office that cares about parent rights and make sure that school choice is an option. If they can do those two things and not be too crazy, I'm totally happy to endorse them. Okay, great. Well, thanks for joining us. Learned a lot and uh, best of luck to you in November. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is a great podcast. Thanks. (laughs) 